the rollout of Industry 4.0, I think, is going to be tailor-made for each company, for each business model, right? I don't think that it's it's a one-size-fits-all solution for everyone, right? There's going to be pieces and technologies that are very, very beneficial to a company, but that technology or that implementation might not work so great or might have no value at all to another business. Welcome back to For the Future. That's F-O-U-R, the future. I am your host, Mark. And this is Michael. And today we're going to cover, you know, is Industry 4.0 overhyped? That's the general theme of today's episode. But before we get into that, we always like to touch base on a little bit of Industry 4.0 news. And I brought to the table an interesting product that I am not sure Amazon marketed very well because I had never really heard of it until I saw it today. But it's called the Amazon Dash Smart Shelf, and it seems like it's just like a really like a really basic system. It sits on your shelf, and it has a scale, and you tell Amazon what you're putting on this scale. So like you could buy a thing of toilet paper, and Amazon knows the weight of that pack of toilet paper, and so when it gets down to a certain weight, Amazon automatically buys you more toilet paper. Hmm. But you can put any product, like people put Gatorade on it or they put snacks on it, which I could see being kind of nice to have. But I imagine, and I saw a few like reviews where it's like Amazon ordered me like two more boxes when I had only like eaten two granola bars. Like what up with that? Huh. That's really cool. Um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't even check that out ahead of time. I'm glad I didn't. Um, you're getting my actual reaction here. That's <laughs> really, really cool. So this is like where my my head went when I heard about when they first did the buttons. Remember, they came out with those little little tap buttons and it was like, that was OK. Yeah. they're And those are called Amazon Dash buttons, right? So this is like the same family of products, I believe. Mm-hmm. And I thought this was so much better because it's passive. Like, yeah. and, I mean, OK, obviously they could they could round up a little pretty aggressively. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically it's like, well, we think it might be one or two Gatorades. Eh, we'll call it two. <laughs> yeah. We'll order you another one, right? Um, there's definitely room for them to uh, get a few extra sales. But I mean, if you're consuming the Gatorade anyway, they probably figure you'll use it eventually. Now, I know I set up the, I tried to do it um, time-based on Amazon. So you can have the automatic reordering oh. on Amazon going. And mm-hmm. it seems like a great idea because you're like, ah, it wouldn't be great if I didn't have to go to the grocery store and remember to get deodorant or shampoo or whatever. And they have like a recommendation. They're like, oh, well, you know, every three months we're going to send you a new stick of deodorant. And you're like, I might use a stick of deodorant every three months. You have no idea. So you let that go for a year. And all of a sudden you've got like three drawers (laughs) full of shampoo and deodorant. And turns out like they recommend things like to refill twice as often as anybody uses that kind of stuff. You have no idea how long it takes you to go through a bottle of shampoo. It takes a long time, by the way. (laughs) Uh, So that didn't work very well either. And I think I got, uh, I signed Kelsey up for it too. And she had the same problem where like, we just, and my family was doing it for a while and everybody just ended up with like drawers full of like self-care products and stuff. And we all, we all had to go back and just cancel all the orders. And now I've been living off 
that drawer full of products for like over a year. I literally haven't bought a stick of deodorant in over a year. That's so funny. Because <laughs> I have so much. But, you know, if it was if it was little pads that you could have it on there and it would just know when you're consuming that, that's really cool. Um, I like I like I love the idea of just passive systems like that where it's just you don't have to interact with it. There's no button. You don't have to open an app and mm-hmm. take care of ordering and stuff like that. That's really cool. I mean, I would I would actually try that. I would like to try that out. Um, and they're I only like 20 bucks. Awesome. So they're not yeah. very and there's three different sizes and they're all every size is 20 bucks. So it's like kind of a, a low price point to just get into something like this. There's some sort of like AI built into it, which made me think of Industry 4.0 as well. Yeah. But I'm like, I'm like, if it's anything based on their recommendations, their AI might be uh, more likely to order more often. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you might still be well, what stuck they, with the same thing. Yeah. And what they what they should do, though, is they should just give those out for free. They should give them out for free mm-hmm. and just say, hey, we'll take care of this. You know, you program this uh, this reorder point in or, or whatever and just let it round up. And then they can basically they can control their revenue stream. I mean, they could basically if they're going to be short for a quarter or a month, I mean, they could just like have everyone's thing put in an order and, and reorder like a week ahead of time. And yeah. they could they could like move um, their revenue streams automatically. I mean, like imagine being able to like tell order have your customers order from you whenever you need them to that's really cool they should just do that i mean the amount of money they could make and and it's so well proven the same thing with subscription services right people mm. sign up for that stuff and it's more of a hassle to go and cancel it's like ah, i'm not really using it it's only 10 bucks a month like whatever um it's kind of a pain in the butt to cancel people yeah. just leave that stuff go so it's like as long as you don't have it like overflowing with toilet paper now you got like eight eight rolls of or eight bags of toilet paper or something. If it doesn't get out of hand, I mean, that's a really, that's a really powerful tool. Um, that's really, really cool. I would use it, but also I would want to have a little bit more control around it. But yeah. anyway, no, that's interesting. That's really cool. Speaking of like subscriptions and stuff, I had a coworker once who hadn't gone to the gym in like two years and she just never, never canceled. Yeah. Never canceled oh it. Cause God. she's like, I just <laughs> haven't gotten around to it. I'm like, are you serious? That's so yeah. much money that you just like let go down. Well, the drain. Hopefully, it was like an anytime fitness or something <laughs> where it wasn't you know like a, a fancy gym, like yeah. a yoga studio gym and stuff. Yeah. It's like you're paying like eighty bucks a month, and you're just <laughs> ah, I don't have time to go. Yeah, I feel bad. Yeah. I have not been have not been taking good advantage of my gym membership either. <laughs> um, uh, cool. And I brought to follow up with our our three D printed housing topics. Um, I found a company called Mighty Buildings. Um, and I think Mark, you were talking about this a little bit before. Uh, we started the podcast here, but they are they got a grant and they did a, a series of funding and they're building a, a community out in California, all 3D printed flats. And they look to be kind of upper scale, nicer, nicer houses, but they're not mm-hmm. like downtown California. So it seems like the, the price per unit is very for, for California is super reasonable. Yeah. Um, kind of like nice, $200,000, which is like yeah. insane for California. Yeah, and that, I think that's the whole point. But they're building this community more out, not I won't say the desert, but kind of in the um, in the valley. Um, so it seems really cool. They look, I mean, beautiful homes, and they're integrating them all with Tesla Tesla panels and roofing roofs mm. on on top, and then they're putting in power walls, so they're good against blackouts and things like that. Yeah, um, really, really cool modern design. And basically, and I thought the really interesting thing is they. They talk about their houses as a product. And I just, I thought that was an interesting way to 
talk about a house, but basically you can pick which unit you want. So they have like, I guess a tiny home. It's like a studio, all glass, lots of, you know, large glass windows on, on two sides of the unit. And that just goes up in, in size from there, depending on how many bedrooms and baths you want. But it's, it's interesting to think about like commoditizing a house where you buy a plot of land, have the utilities there, and these guys come in and just drop a house in where you need it. Um, yeah. And they're they're nice, they're efficient, they're modern. It's not it's not exactly a trailer home, right? Um, being towed in and, and set up. So uh, that's a really interesting, really interesting idea. But they, they look beautiful. I mean, they look, they look just awesome. So and, and all 3D printed homes have to be concrete at this time, right? There's no other materials that they're making printed homes out of. Not as far as I'm aware, but I don't, I don't see why they couldn't do like an insulation foam, like a real high density foam, or maybe mm. even like recycled plastic. I don't see why they couldn't. And then like cover it with like a, like paneling a stucco or, or, yeah. or paneling or something like that. Um, I don't see why they wouldn't be able to do that. So yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, it's just, it's interesting seeing this stuff now that I'm, I've always kept lose track of it and I'll, you know every six months i'll google around and spend some time looking into it to see where the industry's at but like it seems like i mean partially because we're doing this podcast and we're looking at it every week now but yeah the velocity of updates and news from these companies who are putting together and getting i mean these guys raised like 40 million dollars in one of their funding rounds which is pretty ridiculous um yeah price for these these uh, mighty mods two hundred thousand dollars for the housing unit right so it's interesting. I'm, I'm on the website too. It's like for a three bedroom, two bath, like 1400 square feet. They're like, the house is 285,000. I'm like, wow, that's a, that's an amazing price yeah. for California. And then I go down to the detailed site work that they have to do for it. Mm-hmm. And then it goes to $400,000 after. <laughs> so <laughs> okay, I mean, you got well, to pay for labor and stuff and deliveries, but yeah. to, to double the price is interesting. You yeah. think, but I guess, I don't know. When you build a house, you have to take all that stuff into consideration. Yeah. But I feel like you'd never market a house as just the materials. You'd always. Yeah. Well, we've also never considered building a house, right? I mean, we're, yeah. we're not quite at that at that stage in our lives um, mm-hmm. where you would consider like, mm, I want my own house. I'm going to build it. We're going to build that from scratch. Yeah. Um, I like these. Uh, I really like these above garage units, too. Those are cool. It's like a, it's, it looks kind of like a one, like a two flat sort of, yep. but it's like built up on top of the garage, really compact. It's got a little porch and stuff. I think that's kind of cool. So anyway, I thought, I thought that was a cool development on that side too. And that they're not just building one house. They got approval to build ready to sell houses, but it's going to be a whole, like a whole neighborhood of printed mm-hmm. houses. So I think I talked a little bit before about imagine having these things just roll down um, a street and basically they print one house in a couple days, they move on to the next plot. They, yep. You know, the guys are doing electrical work and finishing and stuff on the house behind it. I mean, you can imagine like over the course of a, a rolling week, they're, they're pumping out a house like at once a week. Yeah. Ready and for what sale. They, and just uh, going down the line. If they have the printer on just like rails and it just moved yeah. down like 30 feet, start again. It's, it runs yeah. 24 hours a day, moves down as it finishes houses, like self-sustained. And that, that would be that would be really cool. And they would just have to have like two sets of track and they would just yeah. move the, the track in front of it, lock it in place. It would just mm-hmm. roll onto it, pick that up, put it in the next lot. Um, that's really that's really cool. It'll be interesting to I got to do some more looking into these guys, actually. But uh, very cool stuff. Speaking of that above that above garage unit, do you think you could live in 400 square feet? <laughs> that seems really small. 
Yeah, and I guess if it, it's, it's it's a studio and then a bathroom, so it's like everything's in one room, bathroom yeah. separate. But 400 square feet doesn't seem like a lot of space to move that's around. Not a lot of, that's not a lot of space. I mean, that's probably on the order of like when we were in college and we had four people living in a place. And we would probably average like three or 400 per person. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That's pretty small. I mean, if I were if I were to purchase that as an adult, I probably you know wouldn't wouldn't enjoy that too much. I might go for the Beverly, the two bed, one bath, 665 mm-hmm. square feet, a lot, a lot bigger. Um, that's still not a lot. It's still not a lot. It's still a pretty small. I mean, like 1200 square foot is like kind of a, like a big apartment. Yeah. And that would be, that's why house. like, even like, like so house. the Cinco <laughs> is the one that they have like listed. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's not the one that's listed first, but that's the one I think is like the classic three bed, two bath is a pretty decent starter home. Yeah. And that's 1400 yeah. square feet. Like that would be doable. Mm-hmm. Still on the small side, but definitely mm-hmm. more doable. It's interesting too because these are like flats. Like it's just I don't know, and around mm-hmm. here anyway, everything's a townhome where everything's up, you know, built up a couple floors. Yep. Um, just interesting seeing it just Texas style. It's all just flat. Rambler. Because I don't think they, I don't think they do basements or anything in California, right? Probably not. Or not, not usually. Um, I don't think yeah, so. But I also cool. don't live there, so no idea. No idea. So, so anyway, let's uh, wrap that up for for news this week. So on to is industry 4.0 too overhyped? What are your thoughts, Mark? So when I was like looking into this, a lot of people say that you can look at the first three industrial revolutions and see like a piece of technology that like mm-hmm. defined that revolution, whether it was steam, electricity, or like the microprocessor. And so when looking at industry 4.0, what is that piece of technology? And a lot of people are like, there really isn't one. It's kind of building off microprocessors and you know, adding sensors and the ability to look at and manipulate tons of data. And like robots are like a physical piece of technology, but is it still being built off that microprocessor and the things that came from that? So I think it's an interesting point. Yeah, and I think and if you if you look up Industry 4.0. So if you type in Industry 4.0 news and go to Google News, um, mm-hmm. even on the first page in the last month or so of articles that have been published with that with that uh, those keywords, there's there's a couple on there that are basically questioning: Is it legitimate? Where is it at? Why is it taking so long? Those are pretty common articles that you find when you're looking at Industry 4.0. So it definitely draws a little bit of doubt there, I think. And I think there's a lot of people who see it as a buzzword. Um, and I think, I think partially it is. And, and like you said, there isn't, there isn't a, like a monument of industry 4.0, right? There's no steam yeah. engine. There's no production line that went from craftsmen building cars individually to, you know, model T production line. There's no conveyor belts, right? There's no, when you would go and tour a plant, there is no like mile marker that would define, Oh, this is a factory of the future. Right. Yeah. Yep. And the other the other point that I think a lot of these articles get into, and what I think too, is that the rollout of Industry 4.0, I think, is going to be tailor made for each company, for each business model. Right? I don't think that it's it's a one size fits all solution for everyone. Right? There's going to be pieces and technologies that are very very beneficial to a company, but that technology or that implementation might not work so great or might have no value of all at all to another business. So technologists really need to, can, they need to understand everything and they need to know what's out there and be good about keeping up with all these new startups and these new technologies and new implementations and things like that. And then they need to be 
decisive about which ones they're going to pick, how they're going to integrate together and building a system of technologies that are going to support their business, make it more profitable, more efficient, whatever, whatever, you know, we, uh, guys in technology and R and D and stuff, seller, you make or justify our, our positions with, right. Um, yeah. something, something along those lines, well, we're making the business more efficient in five years, right. Um, that's when you'll see the payback. So you made a good point. Like before we started recording, like if there were two businesses on a street and one got electricity back in the day, that business could double or triple their productivity. And so the business down the street needed to get electricity in order to compete. The same, it's not the same today. Like if, if, a, if a warehouse gets automated robots, that doesn't necessarily mean that the warehouse down the street needs robots to be just as productive. It could be a totally different yeah. business and all these different things contribute to whether or not that investment pays off. Yeah, and I think, that, I think that's, that's a good way to summarize all that is basically saying that it's not such a huge impact that it basically is going to be a like a dividing line either you're in or you're out right yeah. um where in the past i think it really was that like the, there are no well i would say there's a resurgence of craftsmen and people who are um, building something all the way through and making it more personal um but in general in mass production there's you can't you can't not have automated robotic production lines and um, just production lines in general, right? I mean, that's it has to be that way to be able to keep up and to be able mm-hmm. to hit the price point um, to keep up with everyone else. So those those kinds of technologies and thought processes and and uh, just production methodologies, they are they are the gold standard and you have to you have to keep up with them. And yeah, it's really cool to take lots of sensor data and be able to manipulate that, improve efficiency by one to five percent here and there, but those one to five percent gains all over the place are not going to make or break a business, right? Yeah. But I think when you when you compound them though, when you have, you know, one and two and three and four, and you're adding up all of those percent gains, and then they start compounding off of each other, that's I think when you're you know in ten more in five or ten years, you will see that, right? Um, and just something I had thought about, I just thought off the while I was talking, I kind of thought about this too is. You know, looking back, we we see the mile markers, right? Like we're looking at history and yeah. we see, okay, you know, so-and-so, he was running a, I don't know, a, a comb making factory and he took out a loan on his home and, you know, electrified the, the business and bought the production lines and set it up. And, uh, and that, you know, turned him into the largest comb manufacturing company and put everyone else out of business and big, you know, turned into a big executive and whatever. And that's the story that we read, you know, being um, far removed from it. Right. But I'm I'm curious and I, I don't know. See what your thoughts are. Maybe in the time when people were living with it and, you know, now now we look at steam power and all the you know, electrification and these different processes and say, oh, you, you know, that came out and everybody had to do it. And I'm, I'm, I'm guessing there was probably a crossover period of 10 to 20 years when a really well-made steam engine system, coal-fired uh, factory would be able to maybe do better than the early stages of like electrical electric generators, mm-hmm. right? Maybe we're looking at the best that steam power ever was compared to the best that giant electric generators that as we know them today and if you look at the best that those two technologies can offer and say oh well electricity is way better it's cleaner it's um more controllable all these different things but maybe at the time 
when steam power was as good as it was going to get and electrical electrical tooling and uh, things like that were just getting started. There was probably a crossover period where there were people sitting around and it wasn't just a, a no-brainer to go and invest and completely rip out all the steam, steam-powered everything and replace it with electrical equipment. I'm guessing there was a crossover period there that we just don't see today. Yeah, so like in the future, are people people going to be like, wow, a lot of these businesses didn't have robots. Like what were they thinking? Robots are everywhere now, you know, 50, 50 years in the future. Like yeah. I can't believe they were still doing X and X and X by hand or mm-hmm. just manual work. Yeah, I'm guessing that that's what it'll look like, right? Because I think looking back, you're not going to remember the process. You're going to remember where you started and where you ended. And you're going to compare those two points. And no one's going to think about the five or 10 years of all the struggle that went into it and all the failed all the failed systems that didn't work out right and all the times that you tried something and it just didn't, didn't pan out versus you're going to look at your triumphs and where you came from and where you ended up. I think when you look at it like that, it's going to, it's going to appear like there's monuments, right? Yeah. Um, but I bet, I bet it's a lot smoother transition than what a lot of these articles. And when you think back and you're learning about the industrial revolution, it just makes it sound like that. Oh, the steam engine came out and everybody got one and it was great. And everyone, you know, I'm sure there was a ton of resistance to it. Right. I'm mm-hmm. sure the same thing when you think about cars to horses, and maybe this is just in my head, how I think about it, but transition from like horses to cars you know there was there was a transition period mm-hmm. and it doesn't yeah. seem like that it seems like oh they came out with cars and everyone's like okay cars are great we're going to use those and not horses and actually early cars were awful i mean they were bad they used to have before they figured out like traffic signals they used to pay people to walk in front of the car and talk with other people that were walking in front of other people's cars and <laughs> figure out who was going to go and that's how they used to do that which is super silly today because you know, we have turn signals and we have all these safety devices and um, like rules of the road established. But at one point, there wasn't any of that. But people who were riding horses knew how to, you know, interact. And it just wasn't as big of a deal, right? The animals would avoid each other. I mean, yeah, exactly. like they had collision detection built in. They were horses. They didn't <laughs> want to run into stuff. So I think that's I think that's something that people need to keep in mind when we're saying like, oh, Industry 4.0 has been a buzzword for 10 years. Where is it? Why, why don't we see it yet? And it's when you compare it to those other revolutions, I bet that they were not like just an overnight, a one year transition. I'm sure it took 10 or 20 years for that stuff to develop and, and get better and for people to get comfortable with it and for the systems to all get upgraded. Because I think like Mark and I were talking about how how hard and how much resistance there is just to updating your revision of uh, Microsoft Office products at work, right? Uh, how many people yeah. out there listening to this are still running 2013 or 2007, God forbid? Um, <laughs> you know, Microsoft Office products, right? And it's honestly, it's or Windows 7 or Windows 8. And usually what yeah. it takes is the, the company selling the software saying, we're no longer supporting this anymore. You have to upgrade. And that's usually, that's what sets in motion the six-month transition plan for most companies. Maybe there's some companies out there who are more forward thinking and, you know, saw a new techno- a new revision of software come out and they just started working on it right away. I'm guessing most are not. I, it'd be interesting to see. They do put, I think like Linus Tech Tip, he's put out statistics of how many businesses are like running what revision of like Office or Microsoft or like Windows. And yeah. I think it was a year or two ago, but there are still like a significant number of companies that are running XP. 
like really, really old. And it's funny because <laughs> basically there were so many, I think the, the video they made was there are so many, there were so many companies 20 years later that were running XP that they were demanding that Microsoft continued offering just security updates for it. And eventually Microsoft was like, we're not doing it anymore. You have to upgrade <laughs> at least to Windows 7. You have to go. And I think that happened over the last year or two where they finally like discontinued security patches for XP. But kind of funny that industry could be so influential on the company that makes the software and they're, you know, they demand that they continue to support this like 20-year-old software and they're like, Microsoft's like, we don't want, we can't do this anymore. <laughs> you have to move on. Um, so just, there just is an yeah. enormous resistance to change from a lot of a lot of people and a lot of industries. I'm almost wondering if that's why Microsoft, and I'm sure it's a monetary thing too, but like the Office 365, it just like updates mm-hmm. every year, you know? So they don't have to, Microsoft's not trying to push people onto new stuff. It's just like, here it is, like always at the latest stuff. And I wonder if they'll do that with, I don't know how you do that with like an operating system, but specific operating systems are way more expensive yeah. and, and licensing for all of them. I think it's tough things. because... It's very different than like when you build a, a PC at home, you know, mm-hmm. you, you can just run, you're just installing apps. You're not going in and doing all these custom settings and like integrating with secure servers and doing complicated um, like security measures and things like that and rolling out changes to an entire organization. It's like there's a lot that goes into doing uh, like indus- industrial level um commercial grade softwares and stuff yeah so it's just something that we don't deal with and like i know but at the same time i know my my desktop at home runs a lot smoother than my work computer Uh, but it's also not trying to do all these goofy things integrate all this stuff and like like you said like operating systems are very very integral to all that stuff functioning properly right so it's yeah if any little thing changes microsoft can't go around to all the little business softwares and is this going to mess up SAP? Is this going to mess up Oracle? Is this going to kill this integration to this security software or something that virus or virus blocker or whatever that uh, industry is trying to run? They can't go around and deal with all the third-party stuff. So, But I think you're right. I think subscription services, obviously they make a lot of money. They do a nice job generating continuous revenue for a company. That's why a, exactly. a lot of people and you see all these subscription services available for it's only five bucks a month, a million, whatever. But you see a lot of people going to that because then Microsoft can guarantee updates, which is good, and that it's not going to break mm-hmm. anything. And that we're going to roll out these updates, but we're going to make sure that it plays within all the rules that we have set. And your integration softwares are going to continue working with that even as we roll out updates. So I think that's a, a good point there. Um, and then the, the the other thing I wanted to bring out too is that I don't think I don't think there's a case where every company like when when Industry 4.0 happens, let's just say in ten years, five years, industry we like we all can agree. Okay, Industry 4.0 happened. We're ready for Industry 5.0. When it when it is finally gone through, I don't think you're gonna see these mechanized. Everything's automated. All robots. Every company has an AI that just runs everything and handles all the distribution and reorder points for uh, for manufacturing floors and refilling bins and stuff. I don't think it'll look like that. I think it's going to be these tailor-made individual systems for each company. And each company, depending on what level of production and their volumes and what they need from Industry 4.0s, like technology offerings, they're going to they're gonna select what the pieces they need that are most efficient for them and then slowly integrate more and more. 
But for instance, I don't think every company is going to need a, uh, like an additive manufacturing production center. I don't think every company is going to need that. Um, I don't think yeah. every company is going to need all these other technologies like we talked about through um, our first podcast, right? Is that we want, I mean, we spent 30 minutes uh, talking about all the different facets that are going to go into it. And it doesn't make sense that every company is going to need all of that. Um, at the end of the day, there are there are businesses out there that are making custom products. They're not doing, you know, a hundred thousand units a year or a million units a year. They're building a hundred, and that's what their their business is is based on doing just a few pieces. And for those guys, it's not going to make sense to have fully automated production lines with data sensing and everything, and trying to shave seconds off of each unit going down the line. If you're only building five units a day yep. or a week, who cares if you're saving a minute or even a couple of seconds or even a minute from each piece if you're only doing 500 pieces a year, right? It's like, okay, it's like an hour or two. We'll just pay a little bit of overtime and take care of that versus hiring a really expensive team of engineers to come in and all these subscription services and all these softwares that we have to pay for and upkeep. Um, that might not be worth it to everybody. It kind of goes back to my, I wanted to like ask our listeners this. So when we were talking about the previous three industrial revolutions and there being like a key piece of technology, if we want to like combat the idea that this isn't an industrial revolution because there isn't a piece of technology, I think it's an interesting thought to be like, well, is is like the bedrock of industry 4.0, the big data and the connectivity that that data has with you know, the production line and the engineers who use that data to make informed decisions and stuff. Cause we have all like, we have the robotics and we have the interconnectivity and stuff, but is, is the bedrock of all of that having the data to make decisions? That's why I, I feel like that could be like the ability to capture data and use it in a meaningful way, just like the baseline that you can mm-hmm. then build off industry 4.0. So I don't know that I'd be interested to hear from listeners if they agree or disagree with that thought yeah i think i think that's a good point and kind of to one of our earlier points is that doing that there's not going to be a monument on on a physical monument of that right Mm -hmm. and like you were you were kind of getting into what if they uh you know you you give that information to the engineers and the production line and stuff and i think even more than that it's going to end up being a lot of passive systems um, so it's going to be the systems are all set up and they talk to each other and reorder points and things just happen automatically based on algorithm and code and maybe AI integration if it really needs to be that. But I think that's what it's going to really look like is it's it's not going to require human input to do kind of repetitive menial tasks over and over again. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just going to get smarter and smarter with more and more data feeding into it. But I think that's I think that's what it's going to look like, right? Kind of to your point there. So, and and again, you're it's gonna the business is gonna be more efficient. It's gonna be more profitable, um, and hopefully, the people who work for that company are gonna have to spend less time taking care of paperwork and writing, you know, uh, putting in data and things like that to the system. And they're gonna be able to focus on creative, higher value work that they and you know, additional cost savings or bringing in additional pieces of equipment to further automate the whole process, right? And they can work on higher value, yeah. better stuff and basically just enjoy their jobs more rather than taking care of stuff that really is pretty simple um, once you have lots of data and good control over your processes and systems. And all that's just going to 
it's just going to flow right through. And like I said, AI systems are going to be able to take care of a lot of that stuff for us. So I'm freeing up people to do better work, which should be more fun and maybe even mm-hmm. reduce hours. I don't know. Maybe get away from a 40 hour work week. Could That could be what leads us to maybe only having a four day work week. True. When you're talking about, um, you know, there's differences between, you know, mold injection pieces, like a billion of them going through a line a day and then like building five custom units a day of something. And I was just thinking about like, if you could use big data as an industrial engineer, I do a decent amount of time mm-hmm. studies. And if at some point sensors and data collection get so good, I'm sure this is a thing, but if they get so good that you can just have all these sensors and monitor this slow moving line and be able to find out where like the tiniest bits of like elongated task work is. So if you could automatically find the bottleneck mm-hmm. and just pat it's like it's it's passive work mm-hmm. again. It's like, oh hey, like today for some reason this part of the line is slower than it normally is. And then you have an engineer go out there, do a time study and like I'm sure it's a thing, but that's just one thing I thought of mm-hmm. is that even in these slow custom jobs, there's always going to be continuous improvement. Mm-hmm. And if you can use data and sensors and robots to figure out where those pain points are that's just another use but yeah random thought. yeah no that's cool i thought about one thing i thought about what you're talking is um what if it could actually identify like what your needs are and what if that system could not only identify bottlenecks and stuff and say hey if you implemented if we could figure out what's going on during that bottleneck or we we have the data around this and we know that if you upgraded our your system to include this and added this type of sensor, or um, it might make sense for you to add an additional person, or maybe you need to put that person somewhere mm-hmm. else. Um, that'd be really interesting if it could start doing some of that time study work and like uh, recommending what systems you need to add to your production line or manufacturing process or whatever it is. And it could start making recommendations based on all the data that it's collecting. And maybe they know, maybe that yeah. company has other sensors and offerings that you don't know about and what if it could make those recommendations to you based on the data that would be really cool that's probably like an ai type thing to be able to get that meta and also would be great for companies to be able to sell additional sensors and upgrade in their networks and stuff like that but that'd be really cool too um i like the idea of being able to have the system identify bottlenecks and basically draw attention to and like you said the bottleneck can move Mm -hmm. around day to day right i think it's it's simplistic yeah. to say, oh, we know this part of the process is the slowest. I think a lot of a lot of people like to simplify it down to that. And I think, like you said, yeah. not every I think the bottleneck, if you really are measuring everything, it's not the same every day. Right. Um, and I think if you could have like a time weighted average and, and have lots of again, collecting lots of data and analyzing it, but you could see, well, the bottleneck is really like 80 percent this, but it's sometimes it's like 10 to 20 percent that. I think that'd be that'd be really cool too, and you know what your biggest thing, your biggest fish to fry is. But then you also have your second and third option to look at, and maybe once you're identifying, okay, well, it's just going to cost too much to reduce to fix that, right? But maybe we can make a lot of gains here on these other pieces that twenty percent of the time or ten percent of the time it's going to make the production line move faster, which might be worth it. Maybe it's really cheap and easy to move something else around rather than. You know, the, the major problem that's probably fairly obvious on the line, right? Good point. Man, we kind of got off topic. <laughs> kind of. 
a little bit, but uh, that's all good. I think those that's interesting conversation to me. So yeah. hopefully our listeners also found it interesting. Yeah, definitely. I think we're we're starting to come up on our time limit here. I guess we don't really have a time limit, but we try to shoot for roughly this time mark. So, so let's go back. Is Industry 4.0 overhyped, Michael? I would say yes, but no. I think it, I think. I think, okay. Yeah. Very, <laughs> very podcasty answer, right? No, I, I think I think it is a buzzword. I think there are a lot of a lot of companies and a lot of exec boards and stuff that like to throw the term around without really understanding what it is or how it can really be implemented in their company. You know, they're going to they're going to um, sit on on uh, executive calls and things like that, or meeting up with panel industry panels and stuff and they're they're hearing this and they're watching Mm -hmm. it they're seeing the articles on linkedin and i think they they want a piece of it and it's a cool thing to talk about so i think i think in those cases but to those who are saying yeah yeah yeah, we're getting into industry 4.0 just like you know greenwashing same thing right oh yeah we're a green company we believe in diversity inclusion like all of those types of things where they can say it, but okay, what's your action plan? How much are you investing into it, right? How many people have you hired to make that happen? Um, mm-hmm. I think when you're not at that step and you're not at that level, I think it is hype. And maybe that's a good way to put it. Um, or same thing. At, it doesn't. Ha- I'm not. I don't want to just call it executives here, but same thing with people at, at even at a more single contributor, like a management level, who continuously talk about industry 4.0 without putting together a plan on really investing time, money, effort, resources into really figuring out and nailing down how are we going to get into this? You know, where are our biggest drawbacks? Um, what pieces do we need to look at? Which ones have we identified as not very useful for a company? Because sometimes identifying where you shouldn't waste your, or you shouldn't spend your time is just as valuable as understanding where you should spend your time, right? Yeah. But on, on the side of those companies who are doing a good job of dedicating resources who are investing into it who are sending their engineers and and employees out to trade shows and things like that to learn more about it and and having those conversations and doing the trial run on one of their new production lines or converting a small piece of a factory over to use some of these technologies i think to those individuals and those companies it's not um and i think there is real value there i think the the hype comes in when it's all talk i think that's a that's how i'll say it so what's your opinion on it I think that's a definitely a good answer. It's like it's like the talk versus action spectrum. How far are you going to action versus just talk? Something I didn't bring up is like I've when I first started looking at I industry 4.0, there's a lot of consultant companies that mm. I was surprised. And it was like, have us come help you do an industry 4.0. And I was like, that's not very it's just like so it it's like we can synergize your workflow. It's like, it's the same, the same kind of energy. I was yeah. like, yeah, synergy, synergy and like industry 4.0. They didn't really have any specifics, but I'm sure they're kind of, if like a company is like, I want to get into industry 4.0, they're going to Google it and see like, Oh, this company is going to help me do it. So it's like, maybe they will, maybe they're just trying to get business and they're going to do something completely different. Yeah. I don't know. I wonder if, um, like coming up, like floating up in the, in the search algorithm. Right. I wonder if, I wonder if uh, like Google, has helped push the whole buzzword uh mm. like industry i'll call it right because like you said you started saying synergy and you know uh, even even consultants yeah. i think they're they're i won't say it's always bad i, I don't want i don't want to say that all consultants are bad or aren't useful there are great consultants out there who you know can go yeah, into a smaller agree. company that doesn't just doesn't have that expertise they can hire these people in and that can be a huge leap like a jump a jumping off point for them to really springboard to the next thing right um, and maybe that's what they want to do before they go hire 
all these people or invest a lot of money into something. But um, but I do think there are a lot of people that take advantage of that and um, are not maybe as as honest as they need to be um, with all that stuff. And but if you have your tagline and your nice little Squarespace website all set up and it's just got a lot of buzzwords. At the end of the day, people are, are looking up buzz, buzzwords and are looking up these key search terms. And if you have the, your front page is chock full of them, you're going to come up first on the Google search. And at the end of the day, you're yep. going to get the call. You're going to get the email inquiring about coming in for a free consultation call, right? So yeah, I think that's I think that's a good point is that the language itself can a lot of times sound buzzwordy. And I think that turns a lot of people yeah. off. I think a lot of people are very sensitive to that type of language and that type of energy. Right. So I think you need to be industry 4.0 and those consultants and those individuals who are advertising themselves as experts in this space. You just might want to consider how what the perception is of your of your language and how you're presenting yourself, because I think you don't unless unless you want to be coming off like a used car salesman. Right. You might want to be careful about that and include some some concrete facts and help explain because to a lot of people. And like we talked about in this podcast, Industry 4.0 is kind of a, a wide open net. It's a it's a system of a lot of different things, um, and doesn't yeah. necessarily it doesn't necessarily have those landmarks that people can point to. So I think a, a good like blanket statement is that Industry 4.0, the term, can get kind of overhyped and buzzwordy, but the stuff behind it, like you know, smart manufacturing and robotics and big data is real good stuff that I think provides mm-hmm. a benefit and will be looked back upon as a change in manufacturing in other yeah. areas. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that. Okay. That's all I had today. Yeah. Sounds good. Well, it was a good conversation. Got off the rails here and there, but I'll stay within the, the <laughs> wide umbrella of industry 4.0. So I think it's fine. Um, so yeah, come find us on all of our locations where we're posting like anchor and other, and uh, we're on, are we on Spotify? Spotify? Yeah, yeah. Yes, we are. So F-O-U-R, the future pod. And if you have any comments or uh, my earlier call out to some opinions, email us at forthefuturepod at gmail.com. So again, F-O-U-R, thefuturepod at gmail.com. It'd be, be very interested to hear from you. We're always looking for new ideas. Thanks everyone for listening and uh, we'll see you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.